You're listening to What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Here's your hosts, Tommy and Derek. Thank you, Christy, and we are back once again for another episode of What's That Noise. Thank you for tuning in to episode 24. And in this episode, we're going to talk about quite a bit, but it's all centered on the theme of representation and authority. Can we trust what they tell us about our digital technologies or how our laws and public policies are developed and mobilized? From Apple and Google to our own governments, stay tuned for a discussion that traverses the worlds of smartphones, dark tourism and prisons, and somehow ends up with my chance to finally plug my own research. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. actually like apple's been doing a pretty good job with privacy lately at least in my relatively educated opinion like i'm not gonna say i'm a privacy expert but as far as the big the big companies are going they seem to be going along the 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 path that i would want them to go along if that makes any sense so hold on a second this just in i'm getting an email this is really important I, i have an announcement to make for everybody we here at What's That Noise, have a vacancy for a new co-host because Derek has mm. just resigned. <laughs> you like- are off your rocker, sir. <laughs> at least, I should say, at least the surface level. At least the projection. They're do- they seem to be, the only, like, at least they're doing more than what Google is doing, in my view. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Tell tell me more about your opinion. <laughs> no, let's just fucking move on. Return to this a little bit later. We we just did an episode on why you yeah. can't trust corporate manufacturers. It doesn't matter. No, Google, Apple, semantics. The surface level of doesn't course. matter. No, no, but but I get I get what you're saying. But all right, so at the consumer level, you can't you can't say Google and Apple are all the same because they're not doing the same thing. You can't say a company company x is the same as company y because they're not doing the same thing you can say they're very similar and am i saying apple is good with privacy no but what i'm saying is apple like is at least seeming like they're taking privacy at least privacy choices choices to hold your your data back from third parties a little bit more seriously than somewhere like google which is open and selling your information to lots of people like they're just going to tell you yeah your information is being sold apple is like no we're not doing that. Do you whether like- or not it's actually being sold? I don't know. And uh-huh. um, I'm uh, based on our last episode. Like, yeah, it seems like there are ways and there are exploits for that information to be sold. But from what I can tell, Apple and Apple has a decent track record. We saw it with San Bernardino, right? Like they they wouldn't let the FBI get that information. Like mm-hmm. that's that's like if that was Google, do I think Google would have put up such a fuss? So. I don't know. I don't know. Have you um have you seen the show Mad Men? Uh, I have not. Okay, so the beginning of Mad Men is really interesting because there are advertisers working with cigarette companies trying to tell the public the cigarettes aren't bad for you. <laughs> Isn't I think that you like see the, where I'm going with in... this, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I don't I don't need to continue the thought. The listeners figured it out, you figured it out. End of discussion. You are out of your depth, man. Oh, I know that. Absolutely. I've never advocated that I'm a privacy expert. Hey, guys, we do digital privacy. We take <laughs> data protection seriously. Well, I, I think this podcast, like, I'm the criminologist. Like, I, I, I'm good with crime. I know crime trends. If you start saying that prisons are the greatest invention ever, I'm going to be like, listen, Tommy, shut up. <laughs> and I would hope that you would. But, like, I, like, and I expect that you, as you're doing right now, would do the same to me about privacy. Like, I, I, like I'm not, I've, I've never been a privacy guy. Um, but, yeah. Well, that's clear. Yeah, and I, I, I'm also like not overly private of a human. 
Well, you do own an Apple after all. So. That's right. That's right. But I have an um, Android and I don't know that makes me any better. That's kind of what I'm kind of getting. Like, I don't know. Like, do you think every company is the exact same? That they treat data the exact same? No. And I, I think that it's a valid point. I also think that most of these companies are not aware of the level of sophistication and granular nuance of the algorithms that they've programmed and have basically unleashed in a machine learning environment and capacity within their devices, yeah. which is another way of saying that in terms of how the operating system of a device they make works from top to bottom, they, they have an understanding of that, how it works side to side, like yeah. lateral interactions, parallel algorithmic processes, interface, interfering and influencing one another there's a whole depth of things to be said here and in a whole like space for discourse within computer engineering even that hasn't even really happened yet so here's a yeah. good example go look at appy level on an android device do you know what appy level is about no no so appies are like application programming interfaces it basically means like um it's like an algorithmic process that's automated. If yeah. something wants something to happen elsewhere, it's a request for that other thing elsewhere to do something for it in return, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's like basic level of interactions between different software subsystems. And you know, people have probably have heard about this from the Facebook uh, Cambridge Analytica, the Facebook API that made the Cambridge Analytica stuff possible. So anyways, the point is that with each update of an operating system, the appy level of a device increases. And each time the appy level increases, Google will say on its website, like the app developer website, hey guys, here's the, the new security thing that we figured out. So we're releasing appy level 29 uh, for OS 9. And with this new appy level, we have tighter sandboxing around applications. We have more transparent and reliable uh, shuffle procedures and encryption and coding processes. These are all great things. And you scroll down to the very, very bottom of the page and they start talking about how like we decided to make um, the geolocation algorithm that pulls data from the GPS sensor closed source. You can't see how it functions anymore. Mm. So they're telling you they're doing favors for you for security and privacy, but the narrative yeah, yeah. from appy level to appy level gets crazier and crazier and crazier. You want to talk about like double standards in yeah. the articulation of security and privacy at a surface level to make application developers think in a superficial way, just like you were with Apple privacy, then look no further than the differences from appy level to appy level in a Google Android, which is why I could never accept the argument that <laughs> a company like Google or, or, or Apple takes privacy seriously. No way. Fair. So, so you're just saying I'm drink, I'm drinking the, the PR Kool-Aid. Yeah, you you love using that phrase, man. I mean, like if you like drinking Kool-Aid, that's cool. But yeah. this is this is why we're here to call each other out. You're yeah. right. I would never talk about prisons. I did a, a tour of Kingston Penitentiary on the weekend with my fiance. Oh, I kept wow. most Dark of my tourism. thoughts to myself. Yeah. Wow. I kept most of my thoughts to myself because they're not qualified, you know. Fair. And I wouldn't share Fair. them on the show. Like I'm and, not going to do an let's analysis. Get real. That mu that museum is not a. It's not. Uh, in our reflection of what it means to be in prison now or in the past. No, no, <laughs> not at all. Uh, I, the one thing I fixated on a lot, if I can share an experience was one of the tour guides was talking about the, the 1971 riot or the 73, mm. it was in the seventies. It was mm. a huge, huge mm. riot. A bunch of prison guards were, were taken hostage. They um, were forced to wear prisoners clothes and yeah. they were guarded by certain prisoners. So the other prisoners wouldn't kill them so that they could be leveraged um, during like a four-day standoff. And yeah. uh, apparently the reason why the riot started is because Millhaven was another penitentiary was being built down the road. And the rumor was that everybody at Kingston Pen was going to be moved out of Kingston Pen to Millhaven. And the rumor was that it was a super max. And nobody yeah. wanted to go to a super max because it's awful. Yeah. Nobody needs to have been in a super max to know. There's nothing good about a supermax. And this is how the, the riot started. But like Kingston Penn is terrifying. It's it's yeah. a medium, I guess medium security. So is Millhaven. It was never a supermax, but like the 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 rooms that the prisoners stayed in their their cells mm -hmm. at the beginning of the creation of the penitentiary man, 26 inches wide. Yeah. 
That's wild. I, I couldn't even lay down. I've got broad <laughs> shoulders on me. I wouldn't be able to, I'm serious. I wouldn't be able to lay down inside of one of those prison cells. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been on a tour of a penitentiary before? Oh, several. Several. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah what there's... was the, what was the most striking and, and unusual for you? Um, like what caught the... you off guard? It had nothing to do with the prison. Nothing about the prisons or the prison would catch me off guard as someone who kind of studies the the role of the prison and different architectural designs of prisons and the reasons for that. Um, mm -hmm. It was actually the, the blend of capitalism and um, the prison, the fact that they had tours, the fact that like they they were making a, a tourist attraction out of somewhere um, so counter to, you know, where contemporary society has come. The fact that I that I could be on that tour struck me as like something so wild, so incredibly wild. Um, so all of this dark tourism, whether it be Kingston Pen or Eastern Pen in Philadelphia, any of these, they're all so strange and so foreign to me. Um, but also so interesting. There's a lot of work in this area. Justin Pichet, Kevin Walby, um, and people like that. Kevin Walby's been on our podcast, mm -hmm. and he's done a lot of work on this dark tourism and the, and the growth of of prison tourism and penitentiary tourism, starting around Kingston. But it's like it's almost everywhere. Um, any old prison, if it's no longer in operation, it's it's like what easy, what better way or what better thing to do than to just like throw throw up some signs and make it a a, a for play tourist attraction. Um, and that is like so strange to me so foreign to me it, it makes me wonder how tourism seems to be like a solution for vacating these massive pieces of architecture that are brutal and just take up a lot of land and can't, yeah, that, well, can't there's really a couple be yeah there are a couple of options like it, it's basically either gentrify it like redevelop it or like revitalize it that's a nice word for it or turn it, keep it the way it is, throw some like surface level paint on it and make a tourist attraction out of it. Throw some signs up and start running tours. Alcatraz, like they, they exist. Alcatraz is, has its own like little micro economy there. Um, I've never been. Yeah, I've never been, but they like, they have like huge gift shops from what I hear, huge gift shops, like guided tours every 10 minutes. Like it's massive. And like people go there, <laughs> there's an audience for that. There's, uh, and that's so wild to me. It, it's interesting that your point of interest starts like before you even get in the, in the, the penitentiary, the tourism thing. I mean, it starts at the prospect and realization that that's a thing. You don't necessarily have to be at the site, but when you're at the site, you're, you're interacting with the architecture, right? And you're inside of the architecture. And you're being presented a side of the architecture that is specifically cultivated. It's like getting a house tour from a real estate agent. Come in the front door. There's a reason why we, we beeline to the kitchen first, because the living room kind of sucks, right? Maybe maybe there was a, a hole in the carpet that hadn't been fixed yet. And then you go up to the bedrooms and you see the master bedroom and it's awesome and you got the ensuite. But then the guest rooms are kind of tiny, right? And there's no real cross ventilation and it's kind of hot in there and that sucks. When you're in a prison, at least in my experience, it was interesting for me because like when we got into the central uh, part of the prison, um, they had different ranges, right? I think there were originally eight ranges. Two of them were closed off and destroyed from the riots, but we weren't allowed to see the destruction, right? We could only see pictures of the destruction. And, and the pictures are taken from very interesting vantage points that show like depth of the prison versus the the you know the burning mattresses and the clothes strung off of bars and the holes in the walls and broken tables and things like that but it somehow gave way to um the inescapable dominance of the architecture itself that no matter how much of a beating it can take it's still going to prevail there's something very ominous and weird about it but even taking an extended tour i only saw like 15 percent of the prison I that that's this is something I don't understand. Like they have all of these ranges and just like the photos from the destruction, I can look down them, but I can't see inside the cells and I can't get up on the second level of the range. I can't go well, around. Does that bother there. you? Yeah, because it's Why? because I can't see everything. 
they like so for one example we were in the hospital we were at the hospital uh inside kingston pen this is the extended tour it's a long tour and um, we're learning about a murder that happened right outside of the secretary's desk in, in the reception area of the of the hospital where they would do like basically minor surgeries. There's an x-ray room and light operating theater, so on and so forth. And they, they dwelled forever about the story about how a, an officer had lost his life trying to stop a, an inmate who stole a scalpel and attacked him with it and was going to attack a nurse. So he saved the nurse's life. Um, and they eventually had to take the body or something into the basement, if I'm recalling correctly. And then the, the prison guard or the, the tour guide laughed hysterically. And he's like, but you guys cannot go down there. And we're like, well, why not? And he says, there's nothing down there anyways. It's actually really boring. But, you know, there's some sort of inside joke. There's something else going on in that basement that is really interesting to him. And the whole experience is set up from the get go. It's like as soon as you finish signing the waivers, to know your limits as a tourist. You are not allowed to go to certain areas that are roped off. You cannot deviate from the tour or be kicked out. And you cannot ask certain questions, especially if it has to deal with the privacy of, of the prisoners. But I found that that was kind of like a scapegoat or like a ruse for distracting people from asking other questions. So they've established, for example, a limit with me in terms of the way I can question and think during the tour which discourages me from being curious about other things. For example, why we can't go into a basement. I have no idea what's in the basement, but because I was told I can't go into it, I want to know what's down there. It's a prison. It's a tour. Are we not supposed to know about the other 75 or 85% of what goes on inside of prisons, even after they've been closed for seven years? I don't know. Well, it's all it's like even signing the, this, like the waiver is bullshit. Like everything is bullshit about it. Everything is surface level. You can't go down there. There's pro- there is probably nothing down there. They're trying to create this atmosphere of, you know, like mystery. There's, they're making you sign a waiver so that you feel differently after that you've signed that waiver. There's no reason that you would have to sign a waiver to go in there. There's no reason. You're not ever going to be attacked. You're not ever going to be hurt. There's no liability going on. It's a tour. It's open to the public. It's a waiver. They make you sign a waiver just like... Somebody at your local restaurant that has hot wings makes you sign a waiver before you eat the hot wings to make you feel as if it's hotter than it really is. They're making you sign this waiver so that you feel that you're in a different social environment. And yeah, they're telling you you can't ask these questions. Well, probably because they don't have answers. They probably have no clue. I showed up for the tour like basically within a split second of it starting. And when I signed my waiver... The guide came over and he's like, you don't need to read all this. Just initial here, just initial here, and then sign. We didn't, we didn't, didn't even need a witness. The first time I did the tour was with the Surveillance Studies Summer Seminar a couple weekends ago. Awesome time. Everybody read that thing thoroughly, right? Because we're, we're supposed to. We're privacy people. If we're not going to do it, who is, right? I don't read that. He didn't, he didn't let me. Well, oh, man, come on. You got to. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about architecture and privacy and security. And this guy doesn't read the fight for it, even if it is bullshit. Don't you want to know what what happens if they were to say, like, if you if by, you know, reading this section, you just want a prize, you could miss out on a million dollars. You think somebody is going to give ever a million dollars to somebody written in a terms of service? Maybe not a million, but like a hundred. I'm pretty sure I read about that somewhere in Norway yeah, or, like, or like the user agreement that binds the, the user to come and clean the toilets of the corporate. Yeah, office. but. That that, that, happened. that was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> you got to read the fine print. Kale, the lawyer who we had on here in November, he's, yeah. he hears this, man. He's going to call you. Yeah, call I know. You. I'm going to get out a text from him and be like, you're an idiot. <laughs> I have a question for you, though. So yeah. you were there with a bunch of surveillance people yes. from Queen's University, a bunch of academics or pseudo academics, academics and policymakers. Like, what was the makeup? All um, junior and intermediate level PhD students and candidates. I have a question. Okay. How many times did Michel Foucault or Jeremy Bentham come up during your chats while you were at Kingston Penitentiary? Full disclosure, I was pretty tired. I gave a talk the day before and these students were like giving these incredible presentations all week and I was just off. Like, blah, brain off, whole tour, yeah. just just there for the ride, right? But I I do recall 
Foucault specifically coming up three times in the center <laughs> central housing of, of course of the there range was, <laughs> and there was there was a, a little like you know pillar up the middle wasn't there sort of yeah so like the range yeah. is a circle it's like it's like a wagon wheel like western spokes <laughs> right so the ranges they branch out away from this middle cylindrical room and at the the, the base of that room there is uh, basically like a low-lying watchtower. It's not like the classic Jeremy Bentham kind of panoptic thing, but it's reminiscent of that. So it's basically mm. a guarded dome that has weapons in it and an escape tunnel. And there's always one guard in there 24 hours. Yeah. But like I specifically remember Foucault coming up three times in that room, and I'm pretty sure someone mumbled something about Bentham. Oh, this is very <laughs> panoptic. <laughs> of course we said that. I mean, I know. would I, you be I, disappointed I, if we didn't? No, I'd actually be like, thank finally we can like have a discussion about a prison without talking about those two geezers. <laughs> well, the best part about this is that I don't know whether or not we should trim that or keep it. <laughs> I think it's staying. Yeah, it's cool. Hey, so listen, we've this has been cool talking about architecture. So I want to shift yeah, gears a little hell? bit. And yeah, I want to yeah. stop talking about privacy. I, I love that our first time we get back together on this podcast, get things going again, we're talking about a day in the life of metadata and, and privacy. But there is a bridge here. It's architecture. Maybe not architecture of a building or a phone, but architecture of a proposal. You just won a sick, awesome shirk grant. Congratulations, man. Please tell us about it. And, and I really, really want to learn more about this because I actually haven't discussed any of this with you since like February. Yeah. No, well, yeah. What's, we haven't tell us really about tried. this project, man. Uh, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I just got this shirt grant. Um, basically, it's building off my previous work. I, I'm really interested in how we talk about terrorism and how we use um, ideas and cultural uh, symbols to talk and to understand terrorism and the threats associated with terrorism. So like a lot of my work um, really critiques this idea of radicalization um, as a frame to understand terrorism. Um, my sort of short story of my book that's forthcoming um, is basically uh, the idea was created. Um, the idea of radicalization was created as almost like a, uh, a placeholder for a particular um, already vulnerable group of people, already ma marginalized group of people, to, to talk about them without saying the word. And I'm, I'm speaking particularly about um, uh, vulnerable Muslim communities. Um, we talk about radicalization as a placeholder, so we don't have to say that. It's basically kind of what I've found through my research. I'm building on that with the shirt grant. And I'm trying to explore how radicalization become became this sort of dominant framework for understanding terrorism which is yeah go ahead if you want to no 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 you keep i love this keep going yeah it's it's this um so the the project is called how radicalization became the dominant framework for understanding terrorism clutch um yeah it's, a, it's just it's always easy to just frame it around a question um and basically i'm trying to sketch out how like even after 9-11, so it's 2001, even the years after 9-11, we didn't talk about radicalization. It was very rarely in public discourse was that term even used across the board. Suddenly, like we start to see around the mid-2000s and, and a lot um, into the like 2010s, 11s, 12s, this idea of radicalization become what I would argue the most dominant way that we understand terrorism as this like space, this pre-crime space where people undergo these massive shifts, which inevitably culminates in sort of a terroristic um, set of activities or a terrorist attack. How did that happen? A really like quick, um, relatively swift social change like that. How did that happen? That's what I'm trying to answer with with this uh, this shirk project. Fascinating. Yeah, it's so really it's a, interesting. It's a big project. I've got this data um, or these data uh, that I've been collecting for years since my dissertation. It's like I've got millions of tweets. I've got uh, over five hundred thousand public documents. Uh, I'm tracing political speeches, government official speeches, um, access to information act. 
um, like like in camera meeting, well, not really in camera meetings, but meetings of say like RCMP um, terrorists or, or investigation um, groups with stakeholders, the Roma Lion group, all these different stakeholders and how they started to adopt this discourse. Um, and I'm tracing that slowly. Fascinating. Okay, so I have, yeah. I have questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the first significant piece that I ever read on terrorism specifically pointed towards the war on terror mm-hmm. um, and culture. It was written mm-hmm. by Stuart Croft. It was published in 2006. Yeah. It was called Culture Crisis in America's War on Terror. And so the impression that I got from that was that the, the most predominant, the predominant way of understanding uh, how something like terrorism gets framed is through politics of fear. Yeah. So what changes in the mid 2000s? Like obviously radicalization starts getting discussed. Yeah. Um, and so the cat's kind of halfway out of the bag about where this starts to emerge. But do you, do you see a hard line between politics of fear and a shift into radicalization? Does like the former subsume the, the, the the latter or vice versa i mean um not nece- not necessarily i don't think we've um gone away from this politics of fear i think like social change in a variety of settings relies on this sort of um crisis or, or culture of fear that um is used in a variety of different ways right now it's being sort of promulgated in different ways than it has even over the past 5 years um we'll, we'll talk about that maybe a little bit later um but I think it's the emergence of different threats is one reason. So like post 2001, we thought the, the terrorist threat was coming from abroad. We didn't even fathom the, the, the potential or the risk of our own citizens or people in the West attacking the West. So it wasn't even part of our sort of collective conscious. And then we start to see some attacks or some some trends where our own citizens are either traveling abroad and coming back and attacking or planning attacks or what ultimately culminated in I think one of the most um, one of the most influential attacks was the Boston Marathon bombing that really uh, changed our sort of cultural understanding of of a potential attack where these people legal rights to be in the united states um are are kind of um alienated in so far as they weren't like born in the states they had international ties but they were like ingrained in american culture and they attacked um uh, the boston marathon so i think that that was a really large impetus like this idea of the homegrown terrorist really stimulated this shift towards understanding terrorism as like this process. Whereas before, um, and I'm not, I'm, I'm making generalizable sort of claims here. It's not this, um, sort of dichotomous. It's not this like simple. Well, um, I mean, in a, in a podcast, it's fine. I'm not <laughs> reviewing your Shirk application. Your successful yeah, Shirk application. Yeah, fair. Um, yeah. So it, it before, terrorism was more so understood as like oh these like alienated people from uh, from abroad or just hate america or hate the west and therefore they're attacking the west now it's a little it's it's at there's added complexity to it because you're like all right these people are part of what's supposed to be the sort of greatest country in the world and are still attacking um so that kind of changed this idea to make it more so as the criminologist in me would say uh, the shift to understand it more as a form of deviance um, or as a crime rather than uh, as like a, an act of war, for instance. Whereas post 2000, in the, in the immediate aftermath of 2000 and previous to this, there had been terrorism was just assumed to be like an act of war against the country. Whereas this shift towards understanding it as a more form of deviance or as a form of crime opened our imagination to this pre-crime space, this space before a terrorist attack happens and this space that we've labeled radicalization, this, this process by which we go from like just being like quote unquote normal and conventional, conventional people to ultimately engaging in political violence. Um, 
So I think there's a lot that like sort of changed. Um, but I think it, it's a large portion is our cultural imagination uh, associated mm. with, with terrorism. Um, and like, we can't deny like the sort of fear mongering that happens um, after an attack. Um, and uh, if, if a, an attack is thwarted, the media plays a large role in this. Um, so it's a lot of different developments um, happening. Fascinating. This is making me think a little bit about um, uh, Lisa Stampnitsky's Disciplining Terror. Mm, yeah, yeah. So you're familiar with this work, right? Yeah, yeah. So she argues that the expertise, expert discourse on terrorism is kind of operating at the boundary between like science and politics, as well as academic expertise and like state expertise, right? Yeah. So cultural imagination comes somewhere, but so too does like technical imagination and social imagination. If, if there are boundaries like between science and politics and the academy and state knowledge, where do you think radicalization is situated between boundaries? Like you've given some sense of, of what those things might be. Or maybe another way of framing this question more specifically is like, what is it about academic thought in terms of convention that's problematic for you? And in, in like maybe perpetuating or reifying the rise of radicalization. And the reason uh, why I'm asking yeah. is because like I taught the sociology of terrorism right alongside of you at, at King's, right? And I, I had a really hard time building a syllabus that was just on the sociology of terrorism because I found that a lot of the real the, the literature reified some really problematic ways of thinking about concepts like this. Well, I, I think first off, I think there isn't a well developed and established sociology of terrorism. Um, I I don't think that um, we've done enough as sociologists or as criminologists to really extend our horizons when it comes to terrorism. I think we have been far too policy oriented and far too um, oriented around um, problem oriented solutions and far too intertwined with status quo policymaking, far too intertwined with the nation state and and the sort of military industrial complex with understanding these issues. And that there have been a couple scholars who have suggested that for that reason, like terrorism studies have like stagnated or there's been a stagnation in terrorism studies. Um, I don't think I fully agree with that. I think there's like a lot that can be offered um, by sociology and there's a lot of good work happening, but we've been behind the ball in the, for the most part. We haven't been doing rigorous, rigorous empirical studies that are sociological. We've been doing a lot of like surface level understanding how terrorism uh, influences like media portrayals or influences like the public sphere. Um, and all, even my work contributes to that. But we haven't done a lot of good sociological work in understanding the complexities of, of radicalization. We, we still understand radicalization almost as a process whereby like you are kind of just like brought into echo chambers or brought into social groups and you just like shift towards um, uh, political violence. Why is there a less developed field of research into um, ways in which we can treat terrorism as an issue of public health? Like why is terrorism viewed as, as like only a political thing? Why don't we treat terrorism, the end result, as a product that is part of our social health paradigm, that we need a, a healthy democracy, a healthy public, a healthy um, you know um, civil society, and if we have a truly healthy civil society, that creates a context where terrorism can't live anyways. But instead, we treat it as like a mental pathology or uh, an illness of some sort. What does pathologizing um, the catalyst of uh, political violence expressed through like the media manifold of terrorism and radicalization do to um, insulate from politics? Or maybe I'm giving way with the question, but there seems to be something kind of like equally isolating and um, I wouldn't say vacuuming, that doesn't make any sense, but to, it's, it seems as though 
the the narrative on mental health as the source for uh, the cause of radicalization somehow like draws um, a, a neat little border around the, the the catalyst and sort of exempts the state as a po- as like possibly responsible for this. That's kind of exactly it. It's like if you can call something um, or if you can label something as um, uh, like a pathology, then that makes it seem to the uh, onlooker as if like you you can't like it's not the state's job to deal with it if it's just like a one-off person who is like sort of to to follow the trope like gone mad or something um then it's it's not the state's job or or not the state's job to deal with that preemptively whereas if it's if you say the problem is actually we live in societies where there are groups that are continued to continually marginalized, continually face forms of inequality, social, economic, political, religious inequality. Um, and we need to deal with that in order to prevent anything to manifest, anything problematic mm-hmm. to manifest in the future. That's one, very much more difficult. And two, much more difficult to measure any policy or any intervention that we put in place to prevent that. How do you measure like the full overall health of a population and of a group. It's very challenging. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of like patience. It takes a lot of um, careful consideration. And unfortunately, that's not the end goal for most policymakers, particularly when you think that like, like the political realm, they're only in, they only have terms of four years so there's like heavy turnover. They need to show results because we don't like the elections don't wait for results of policies before they make their decision. You know what I mean? So we need, it's, it's a challenge. And, and that's, that's something that I think sociology is particularly keen to understand and well positioned to understand and yet hasn't done a, a wonderful job to date. But there, I, I stand by it. There's some amazing work being done by a variety of scholars um, that, it, that we're changing this. Well, I mean, that, that's why you're doing what you're doing. You found a gap and you're, you're drawing glaring attention to it. And this isn't like a methodological gap. This is like a disciplinary problem. You know, like this is a huge contribution, man. This is super exciting. I, I got to ask, though, um, I, I, well, be, before I ask the question, I, I have to say I disagree a little bit. Um, in as far as the state absolving itself of the responsibility of somebody has mental health issues, because we're just talking about prisons, right? I don't necessarily think like, that's not really what I was saying. I realized that even when I was saying that it, it came off as such. Um, but I think it's a way, I, I think that the, the state doesn't view terrorism as a public health issue. And I think that we should consider it mm. as such a little bit more. Legit. That, that's totally, yeah, yeah. 100% I'm with you. I, I've just been kind of, I guess, fascinated in the meantime about the continuation of politics and the continuation of the, uh, you know, discreet, very hard to see implied uh, subconscious commitment, so to speak, the governance commitment to absolving the state of a possible catalyst of terrorism and resentment and political violence, you know, and we could talk forever about the legacy of the cold war and what it did to certain parts of the world, right. Amongst a variety of other things. But my point is, is that there's something really fascinating about what happens to people when they go into prison, when they're charged with, with terrorism. Mm-hmm. I think Guantanamo Bay has to be one of the most interesting things that I've ever read about. Well, that's, that's not like prison. Trying to re-socialize people, but then, whether you keep them in the U.S. or send them back home so that they could potentially reintegrate or quote-unquote re-radicalize, I, I don't know. It's fascinating. I was kind of hoping you'd, you'd say a little bit more about that. Well, like, Guantanamo is not a prison. And it's, it's uh, by all intents and purposes, a camp, uh, a military-occupied camp that is problematic in a, a million different um, uh, ways. Fair. So it's not really a prison. Um, and, and well, I, I think there, there are problems with ideas of reintegration to begin with. I, I think anytime you, you talk about reintegration, um, there are many, for every positive outcome that somebody might think of, like, oh, like, like, oh, re-socializing, bringing people like back into the society. There are negative things. 
There's a lot of times in history where we've tried to integrate people, forced integrating people, and it's been not a good thing. Um, in when we have like the you know time in hindsight, I should say. Mm. So it's a question of like, at the end of the day, like violence. No, violence is never good. Violence is never ever good across the board. But you know what? Extremist ideas, extreme ideas, are good. The idea is good. It's good to be, and we are in an open democracy. Ideas that are extreme left, right, up, down are central to our ideas of democracy and freedom. Even in so the how, context of like extreme left and extreme right politics being as turbulent and as physically violent as it's ever been in the US right now. Like, I don't, the physical violence is where it crosses a line. Right. Quite the difference obviously. between idea. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's where the center of this has to, like, I think one of the centers that we have to focus on. Like, ex extremism isn't inherently bad, but yet the label of extremism is very, very bad. All oh, right. Okay. And yes, like the activities associated with extremism can be bad, but you know what? Some of them can be really good. Some of them are pro-social activities. Getting out and and you know screaming "f you, uh, Trump, f you, Trudeau" is your inherent right as a as a democratic citizen, and that's a relatively extreme take. Like not everyone is going. Like if you just take the the normal curve of human distribution. Not everyone's going to parliament and yelling F you, Justin Trudeau. So by doing that at a protest, that is relatively extreme. There is a bigger continuum there. There's more extreme, less extreme. But we need to highlight, or, or I don't think we ignore the people who go beyond that. I just think that we need to develop interventions or policies or change the way in which we approach issues of terrorism fundament that fundamentally deal with uh, social inequality rather than violence, rather than crime, rather than deviance. We need to deal with, with communities and groups who may or may not be vulnerable um, to some of these behaviors and activities with the main focus being on equality rather than preventing terrorism. Because the logic that follows, if you deal with something as a problem of terrorism, how can you view it in any other way? If you tell a bunch of police, for instance, that, that we are creating this new anti-terrorism program that brings in the community to talk to us and to share information to prevent terrorism, at the end of the day, you're always going to view those communities through the lens of terrorism, that some, one, maybe two, maybe zero of these people will engage in terrorism down the line. But if we change the narrative, and if we say, rather than dealing with this as an issue of terrorism, why don't we ensure that there, is, there are equitable, equitable resources distributed amongst all community members? Why don't we ensure that our communities are so healthy that nobody would want to engage in any extremist behavior to begin with? Why don't we listen to grievances, real grievances that exist? People are pissed off for X, Y, Z. Why don't we listen to that to create this healthy relationship? Why don't we take seriously those grievances? Not just listen, but put resources behind them. And then you're not dealing with terrorism as terrorism. You're dealing with what could end up in violence uh, in terms of political violence. It could end up in terrorism through public health, through an issue that you're dealing with equality, you're dealing with equ equitable distribution of resources, and you're dealing with those issues by creating a great life for everyone and, and or, uh, an equitable life for everyone. Fascinating. That's it, kind yeah. of where my research has gone in the past. It's not really the center of this particular project, but that's kind of the, the, the take on radicalization that I have. I don't think we can ever get away from this sort of placeholder mentality until we change the narrative um, about how we deal with this. I want to ask you about the, the, the central point for your, your new project moving forward. But before yeah. I do, I'm just curious. 
So let's say hypothetically that we do shift into uh, a public health uh, focus in terms of like the origin of radicalization. And I'm putting big square quotes around that, obviously. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I'm asking this, Derek, is because I'm thinking back to 11 years ago when H1N1, when the H1N1 outbreak was a thing, Google flu trends, the web service operated by everybody's favorite do no evil corporation, mm-hmm. um, studied influenza activity of like more than 25 countries. They ended up developing an algorithm <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's like that one website. I can't remember what the domain is where the website would show, um, statistical pictures like charts, right? Like, uh, a constellation of numbers with lines between them on some sort of spreadsheet. And you would show correlations between two different trends and data from completely unrelated data sets. You know what I'm talking about? Where yeah. like the you know the, the the fluctuating proximity of the moon in relation to the Earth had the same like data trends as how many people were looking up who they thought was going to win the Super Bowl yeah. in 2009 because that's what happened. Yeah, Google used an algorithm that correlated how people were looking up who they thought was going to win the Super Bowl in 2008 to predict the spread of H1N1. There's huge money in this. This is my point. Yeah. yeah. There, there are corporations everywhere. The whole big data industry is chomping at the bit to get involved into public health. What is stopping the convergence of radicalization and public health then? Because there's so much money to be made in this. Everybody that that you and I know in the critical security studies community, as far as I'm concerned, when Obama pulled all of those troops out of Afghanistan, like 60,000 or whatever troops coming home, we all basically said in unison, this, this is where cyber crime and cyber terrorism is going to ramp up. Because if you're not investing in fixing Humvees in the middle of the Middle East, it has to, to shift. The new economic investment for security is going to be online. So why isn't it? Why isn't it public health? There's economically, like it, it can be exploited like crazy. My best answer is that there's an equally powerful economic force driving policymaking in the, the field of terrorism. Um, it fuels this culture of fear, if you want to call it that, to borrow Stuart Croft, um, this sort of culture of fear that's created, also fuels the military industrial complex, which is one of the most powerful economic drivers of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, yes, yeah, I agree that the shift in public health and public health is a, there's money to be made. And, and when we're talking about influenzas and we're talking about global pandemics, that, yeah, there's so much money going um, out of the nation state into understanding this. And not just the nation state, also corporations in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. But the equally strong, potentially, is this um, fueling of the military industrial complex and our our desire and need for security and safety um, matters equally, if not more. That's my best guess um, as someone who's studied this for now a decade. Um, <laughs> That's a much better educated guess than I've got. <laughs> <laughs> I look at Google's flu trends dying off and I'm like, that's interesting. They, I, I'm surprised I didn't keep going forever. They, they, that, that algorithmic experiment has even stopped publishing reports. You know, Google yeah. just makes so many things and then they just stop. But anyways, that's, that's not the point. You've, you've done a really wonderful job answering my question. I really, really want to know about where your research is going now. Yeah. What is the new so, central focus? So the central focus is tracing out how this idea became so central. And so it's, it's uh, not necessarily an intervention um, to, to sort of argue for one direction or another. But I, I think the base, the base level of knowledge that we need was that how this idea of radicalization became so influential. No one's answered this question. So it just pops up. It seems as if it just pops up. Some people say, oh, it was a 2004 policy decision in the Netherlands or oh, it was actually Belgium that created this idea. And it's sort of just, you know, diffused across the Western world. Uh, I'm, I'm not satisfied with that answer. I want to know how this idea went from, say, a singular policy decision or a singular policy to being the 
concept, the idea that's thrown out by journalists, that's thrown out by political leaders, by governmental organizations, in our policies, like in our official counterterrorism policies. Now they meant they continuously mention radicalization. 2001, nope, never mentioned it in our, or we didn't really have. 2004 and on, didn't really mention this idea. And if this, or by tracing that out, we can see who the key stakeholders are, who ran the sort of discourse or who were, who were leaders in that discursive shift. And what I intend on doing is tracing out the, the influence of either those organizations or those people. Uh. Was it, was it a political economic thing? Was it, if, if a, an organization led the sort of radicalization shift, for instance, and that organization is heavily funded by uh, another or the sort of proxy organization that we can find, that we can trace out, what does that tell us about like the influence and the, the shift in cultural sort of understandings? So I get the sense that part of this is obviously going to be historical, but like to the extent of being like comprehensively genealogical as well, like, are you going to look at the, I don't know, maybe the etymology of the derivative of radicalization, like radical? You know what? Like there's been a lot of work in that area done. Oh, um, really? So, yeah. Oh. Mark Sedgwick. Um, there's been like tracing the etymology of the word, just like we've traced the etymology of terrorism back to the French revolution. Right. And right. Period of like, you know, like fight between two different groups, blah, blah, blah. We can get into that um, conversation another time. Um, but that's that's been traced out. The etymology of the idea of radical, radical has been uh, traced out. I think this is a common, like uh, a lot of people have sort of critiqued me for this. Like um, the idea, I think the idea of radical and the idea of radicalization are inherently different. Radical is a state. Radical is, is something that emphasizes a state of something. Radicalization is a process. Beyond that, we've created an entire uh, sort of, I don't know what the word for it, an entire assemblage, if I'm borrowing from the surveillance studies uh, field, uh, an assemblage that surrounds radicalization that make it different than just calling somebody a radical or like saying something is radical. Now we've got like this radicalization. It's so imbued with its own meaning is what I'm trying to say. It means something different than just the term radical. So to put a long or to make a long story short, I don't think it's like that useful to trace that etymology. I guess I, when you were talking, I, as my brain does, it, it wandered and held on to those like side things that, you know, we sometimes do as academics when we hear something that's kind of thought provoking, we, use one half of the brain to listen the other half to like write down something or look something up in my case i didn't realize that the like the etymology the origin of the word radical was from like late middle english to mean the root yeah the root of something yeah yeah it's not even a sort of it has nothing to do with politics and that's kind of where you're getting at like root like, where do you think the idea of root causes of terrorism come from? I, I don't know. Maybe I was just excited at the prospect of you writing a book where you have a preface, right? And the preface has nothing to do with radicalization, but it's like an <laughs> etymology thing. And your first page is a picture, like some artwork from like, you know, 14th century, late 14th century. Well, like medieval. a rhizome or something? No, no, not not even that, but like a jester. <laughs> with a big red suit on and he's got like a hat on and the hat is like a castle and it's on fire and he's holding a spear and it's called the radical there's actually a piece mm -hmm. precisely like this um made in nuremberg but mm. <laughs> anyways I, I was just kind of hoping you'd, you'd do that can you do that in the introduction maybe, of your book? maybe i feel like that's a very like michelle foucault thing to do sts <laughs> too yeah science and tech studies does that a lot. yeah like bruno latour like i feel <laughs> like this that artwork that's a very French thing to do, I should say, a French academic scholarly thing to do, to like start a book off with something completely unrelated. And it's so, I love that type of writing, but I guess maybe I'm more of a, an American or Canadian style of criminologist <laughs> that I don't really do that as much. Um, so one of the big glaring differences between going to school here and, and studying in Germany last year. The, the idea of critique is not emotional in Germany. It's just like, it's part of the job. It's not personal. Yeah. 
anytime anyone would use the word critique around me as a PhD student, I wasn't sleeping. Well, it's cutthroat. Like here, it's so cutthroat, and it it is emotional because of how cutthroat. Like grad, we've talked about it on this show. Like grad school oh, yeah. is like a grind, man. Like and like people are people are not nice in grad school, um, no, and it's something no. we have to change. Uh, I think has to be changed. We need to to adopt more positive styles of interaction and build each other up. Ju Young Lee, we had him on the show. He's mm-hmm. the best. He's he's incredible awesome. in terms of like building people up. And that's that's those are the people I like to like surround myself with now in my career. David Lyon is like that. It's been a real privilege learning from him and working beside him as closely as I have because he is always upbeat. He's yeah. never negative. And even Good. if he's critical of something, he reveals it in a way that's still ingratiating somehow. That's a really, really hard thing to do, I think. Or maybe it isn't. Maybe we're just so distracted from the notion of like being nice as a professional is like somehow a fleeting, uh, escaping impossibility for us. It's so, it's such a big problem. Um, that's bigger than just like interpersonal communication. Like it's, it's really easy to say, Oh, we can all just be nice to one another. Well, if you've grown up and you've become, so you've gone through undergrad, you've got your MA, you went and got your PhD and now you're a new, like tenure track, hopefully tenure track, but a new junior scholar trying to work in academia at every one of those levels, you've faced privilege and you've faced competition, like different forms of privilege. You faced inequality or lack of inequality. You've faced all of these things that have disciplined you to be this competitive sort of person that dry or that brings other people down. And then on top of that, we have peer review. We have reviewer two that like your job is to critique, like central to our job in academia is critique. So when you put those two things together, mm-hmm. this hyper competitive nature that we've been trained into with uh, an inevitable focus on critique in our work, it just creates this, this context of just nobody wants to support one another. Everyone is there to eat their, or to, to get their cake. And, and I don't know, it's just, I have lots of thoughts on this. I feel like this is a very different podcast. (laughs) Maybe, maybe it's a good jumping off point to talk about mindfulness and like interperson, interpersonality and collaborative work and stuff like that. I know you've got experience with this and, um, yeah, I mean, it it is something we've touched on before, but I, I can't help but to, to reiterate now at the end of this podcast that this is a real problem. It being here at Queens has been um, really eye-opening, especially because this is the highest caliber institution that I've had the privilege of of working at, and uh, to see the level of commitment from PhD candidates, PhD students, MAs, undergrads—it's crazy. Yeah. Like, I, oh, I, oh, absolutely. I, like, it's, it's not all bad. I'm not. I'm not saying like. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that like they only work hard at Ivy institutions. I'm saying there's. I've noticed a culture where people push past way, way, way past their insecurities and their anxieties to work at, you know, the point of like real self detriment there's, there's like this feverish, almost borderline paranoid. Yeah. That isn't healthy either. Right? No. And I have an issue where we're not like, I, I hate to like, I don't know, get like Marxist on us, but we're like not supporting people for the work that they're doing. We're exploiting grad students. We're exploiting junior scholars. We're ex- exploiting postdocs and contract instructors. Um, we're expecting them to do more work, and a lot of that is unpaid. Well, you know, if if you um, if you publish, and I publish, and we open up these like disciplinary limitations, maybe we can we can hire more jobs, and and then we won't have to to worry about this stuff anymore. That's what All we right. need to do. That's how that's how we're going to make our contributions. That's You're how we publish your book, system. and I'm going to publish books, and we're going to make no money in the process. <laughs> but it's going to create jobs. That's the way it works, right? That's the way it works. Oh man, that's um. You know, I'm full of it when, as I'm saying that, my fountain pen explodes <laughs> all over all you, all over my hands. Oh, brutal.
Brutal. Yeah, might, might be a cue to stop. Uh, yeah. Well, it's been a, a, another good chat. I, I don't know. This might even be like two podcasts. Like, <laughs> well, we just I think it's my turn to edit, so I'll I'll see how it goes, and then we can yeah. decide from there. But let's um let's meet again tomorrow. And yeah. Let's let's keep going. I know we've got a lot of great guests teed up soon, but um, I think it's really great that you and I can just chat and lay the foundation out again and, and just. Uh, Thanks for tuning in to another episode of What's That Noise? If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. If you have a topic or guest in mind, don't hesitate to get in touch with Derek and Tommy on Twitter at WTNCast. Stay tuned for bi-weekly episodes and until next time, keep listening to the noise.